This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly message podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's message. Beautiful day. Since we're together, we might as well say, Would you be mine? Could you be mine? Won't you be my neighbor? Won't you please? Won't you please? Please won't you be my neighbor? Hello, neighbor. I am so excited to be here with you today as we kick off our brand new teaching series, Won't You Be My Neighbor? In honor of that, by the way, uh, I wore my cardigan and our worship team was sporting some fantastic cardigans. I don't know if you caught that or not, but uh, we were trying to recapture the, uh, the essence, the image of good old Mr. Rogers. Because really the series is all about taking steps out and asking people, being vulnerable enough to say, would you, would you be my neighbor? Would you get to know me? Could we have relationship? Could I turn the place that I live, the place that I work, uh, the place that I hang out and spend my free time, could I turn that into a neighborhood that actually impacts people, that actually has an effect as I brush shoulders with people that they would experience and connect with the God that I serve simply by me asking the question, won't you be my neighbor. Hey, if we haven't met yet, and I know there's some of you out here who I haven't had a chance to connect with, I'm Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and I want to say I'm so glad that you are here at church today, that you are in connecting with God, uh, that you're spending a few minutes probably praying for your team today. Hey, that's cool. That's fine. Super Bowl Sunday. Have some fun with it. Uh, The Patriots could use some prayers probably, because I think the Giants are going to take it down. I'm kind of excited about that, but uh, oh, I I forgot the they beat the Niners, didn't they? Sorry. The, the Patriots are going to take those stinking Giants down. Man, I can't stand that scum, those Giants. Ugh. I just can't stand them. Uh, I'll be cheering for the Bears this, to this day. So I'm a, I'm a diehard, and that's the way that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to roll this morning. So uh, I just hope that you are ready for an incredible day. A couple of things I'd love for you to do. Uh, when you came in, you got a program. Inside of it, there's something that says connect card. It says start here. That's our connection card. That's our way to connect with you. It's our way to help you connect with God, connect with the church. Would you take a second right now and just fill that out for us? Just put your name and email address if you're a regular part of our community. If you're new to New Life, would you give us as much information as you're comfortable with so that we can help you connect? If you would do that, if you're a first-time guest and you would just uh, fill out that card, give us your information, uh, we'd just love to thank you for coming, be praying for you this week, and we actually have a gift for you out at our Connect kiosk in the lobby. So if you would just drop that card in the basket later, and then go out to the lobby and get your gift. The other thing that you want to grab is you're going to want to grab your teaching notes. It has all the scriptures that I'm going to be teaching on today. It has some fill-in-the-blanks. And the reason we do this is because we forget the majority of the things that we hear within like 24 hours. And so our goal is that you would take this information, you'd take it home with you, and then you'd look at it throughout the week and kind of refresh yourself and, and uh, really get back into the stuff we're talking about so that this isn't just a flash in the pan. So it's not just a, a Sunday morning thing because really God wants to uh, encompass our entire lives. He wants to be moving and working in your life every day of the week. And this is just one way that we help you do that. 
So this series, Won't You Be My Neighbor, is one that got uh, inspired by our Take Hold initiative. It's a two-year vision that the church is on that you've been hearing about uh, for a while now. And one of the key parts of this Take Hold initiative is that we want to turn the places that we interact on a regular basis into neighborhoods. We want to love people and care about people in a way that it, uh, it reveals Jesus to them. It draws them to a place of wanting to know him. And so we're going to take the next three weeks and ask three basic questions. How am I already flavoring my neighborhood? That's what we're going to be talking about today, because we are all flavoring our neighborhood somehow. Uh, How have I put up walls, whether intentionally or unintentionally, that keep people out, that keep people at a distance, that keep me from rubbing shoulders? How have I built up walls, and then how can I tear those walls down? And we're going to talk about that next week. And then the third week, we're going to talk uh, about—we're actually going to dream a little about what it would look like to institute uh, the party— in our communities, the party in our neighborhoods. We're going to be having some parties, and we're going to actually do uh, some really fun church-wide stuff, and I'm not going to tell you about now uh, all about creating a party atmosphere, because in the Bible, parties were a huge part of building neighborhoods and building communities. So Ron's going to be taking us there in just a few weeks. Would you join me as, uh, as we pray and then dive into uh, the Bible this morning? Holy Spirit, we invite you into uh, this place in a general sense, and we know that you're already here, and we invite you into our lives uh, to speak to us, to guide us, to lead us to the things that you have, because you have uh, truth that you want to speak to each one of us. Sometimes we have those moments, Lord, where we feel like, wow, that sermon was just for me, and we know when we have those moments that it was you speaking to us. And so I pray for each of us today, myself included, that something that we hear today, whether it's through a worship song or through the teaching Uh, we would be able to say, man, that was just for me. That was God speaking just to me. Would you be doing that, Lord? Would you give us uh, that great gift this morning? And then would you take these things that we hear, would you transfer them from our ears and our minds into our hearts so that we can live them out as we walk out of this place? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've known me for any period of time, one thing that you'll know about me is that I love to eat dinner. I am a huge dinner fan. I'll skip breakfast and lunch and just go with coffee. If that means I get to have an even bigger and more delicious dinner, I love to eat dinner. But here's my problem. Uh, Until I got married, and I still have this problem, I hate to cook. So I love to eat, but I hate, I I mean, I hate to cook. I cook just to survive. When I was single, uh, if I had to cook at home, which was rare, I'd usually go to like McDonald's or Taco Bell or uh, Burger King. I actually got salmonella as a single guy, and they asked me, have you been to a fast food restaurant in the past two weeks? And I listed off like 12. And they said, well, that's not going to help us at all. Uh, But when on the rare occasion that I did cook at home, here's what I would do. I'd take a frozen piece of chicken, and I'd put it on my George Foreman grill, and I would just cook the heck out of that thing. No seasoning, no flavoring, nothing. Just a a plain old piece of chicken. And I'd put it on my plate, and I'd cut it up, and that would be dinner. And dinner was bland, and it was boring, and there was nothing fun about it. I just did it to sustain myself, did it to survive. And then I married Maria. And Maria is incredible in so many ways, including the fact that uh, she is Lebanese, and she brought in this whole Middle Eastern flavoring on food, like using cinnamon and salt to flavor food. So this boring piece of chicken and some rice, which I hated rice before, uh, became this incredible flavor sensation. It was a burst of flavor in my mouth. It was, a, it was a utopia of deliciousness, right? I just loved it. And here's what I realized. A little bit of salt or a little bit of cinnamon 
can flavor the entire meal. It's incredible. Just a little bit, just a pinch of salt in a meal can flavor the entire meal. Just a, a touch of cinnamon can, can turn a meal into this just delicious, incredible treat. And here's what the Bible says, and this is really interesting. Don't miss this. The Bible says uh, that you and I, that we are like spices, and that with a little bit of focus in our lives, we have the capacity to flavor our entire communities. With just a little bit, just a little bit of focus, just a little bit of energy, we can actually flavor, even though there are just a few of us, we can flavor our entire communities. And this morning, I want to start off in the Old Testament looking at a neighborhood that could really use some flavor. And then we're going to jump back into the New Testament as we wrap things up together. Uh, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the story of the destruction of Sodom. Uh, I'm reading through Genesis because it's my favorite book of the Bible. I love Genesis, and I love to start out the year by reading Genesis. And I got to Genesis 18, the story of the destruction of Sodom, and I thought this is just a really exciting way to start off my morning. So uh, we're going to talk about Sodom because they could have used some flavor. And to understand the story of Sodom, you have to understand the history of Sodom. Sodom was one of five cities uh, that were these incredibly rich, lucrative cities. Uh, Sodom was the most wealthy, and so Sodom was kind of the influencer of all five of these communities. You've heard of Sodom and Gomorrah. Gomorrah was another one of these communities. There were five communities in this region, and they were incredibly lucrative, incredibly wealthy. And the other thing to know about Sodom, uh, Sodom was full of incredibly beautiful people. It was a lot like new life, a lot of beautiful people, uh, like all of you guys. Uh, and so Sodom was not huge. When we think of cities that are really wealthy, we think of bigger places, L.A. or something. It wasn't huge. It was about a thousand people. So a relatively small city, but incredibly rich and incredibly uh, prosperous and full of beautiful people. It was like a club med. It really, it was really nice. Here's the issue with Sodom. Uh, Sodom had no biblical law. There were no Ten Commandments at this point. There was no Old Testament law. Basically what happened was people's own morality governed them. So they decided, this is what I think is right, so I'm going to do it. Or this is what I think is wrong, so I think I'll stay away from that. They just kind of did whatever they felt like doing. And here's what the inhabitants of Sodom felt like doing. And I'm not making this up. This is what they felt like doing. They said, we're only going to allow rich people and beautiful people to live in Sodom. We, we like things the way they are. We don't want any poor people coming in. We don't want any needy people coming in. We sure don't want any ugly people coming in. We only want really rich and really beautiful people coming in to Sodom. And they actually made laws that allowed the people, not only allowed them, but expected the people to, whenever someone came in, if they weren't rich and they weren't beautiful, uh, you were supposed to beat them, rape them, enslave them, or murder them. Anything you had to do to keep people out. Now just let that sink in for a second. This was the law. Here's, Here's part of the actual law of Sodom. Everyone who strengthens the hand of the poor with a loaf of bread shall be burnt with fire. That was the law. Not only were you allowed to beat and rape and enslave people who were needy or poor or hungry or ugly, you were expected by law to do it. Uh, There's a story that came out of this time period about a woman who, a needy man came into the city and uh, 
they, people couldn't figure out how he was surviving, how he was staying. Well, they found out this woman was actually helping him. She was caring for him. And when the men of Sodom found out about this, they took the woman, they hung her to the city wall, they covered her with honey, and they allowed the bees to come and sting her to death. This place is incredibly morally bankrupt. It is a horrible place. Extremely wealthy, extremely beautiful on the outside, but just a horrible horrible place to live. So I told you, this is a really exciting way to start off our morning. Right? We're talking about the, dis- the destruction, though, of Sodom. God's got something to say to Sodom. They needed some flavor in their community. So right in the middle of Sodom was the city center, and in the city center, there were these beds laid out. And so what travelers would do is they would assume, because in the ancient world, it was just assumed that people would be hospitable towards you. So travelers from outside of Sodom who didn't know the background, they would assume that these beds were for them to sleep on in the city center. So travelers would come in and they would rest there. And the men of Sodom would actually take patrols. They would take shifts of the city at night and they'd go around and they'd find people sleeping in the city square. It was a trap to lure them all to one place. Sleeping in the city square and then they would beat them or enslave them or murder them or or rape them. It was a horrible, horrible place. So that's the background of Sodom. We just need to know so that we can fully understand what God is doing in this story of Sodom. So we get to Genesis chapter 18, and this is where we come across the story of Sodom, and it's not by accident. See, for the last eight chapters in Genesis, we've been following the story of a guy named Abraham. And Abraham is kind of a big deal in the Bible. When you read about the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that's this Abraham. He is the father of the Jewish faith, and then Jesus comes through him, and that's why we're all here, okay? So that's kind of Abraham in a nutshell. He's a very big deal. We've been following him since God called him early in Genesis all the way through, and now he's encamping in the hills over Sodom. And the reason why God tells us about Sodom is that Abraham's nephew, Lot, is living in Sodom at this time. Now, Lot, we can assume he is attractive, and he's rich. We know he's rich. He's got so much livestock, so much money, so many slaves that he and Abraham actually had to split because there wasn't enough land to sustain them. That's how Lot went into Sodom, because he saw how lucrative it was and how rich it was. Here's the problem. Lot is an upright man. Now remember, there is no biblical law, but he's just trying to be righteous, which means he's trying to follow God to the best of his ability. And so this is how we get to this story. Abraham is camped in the hills outside of Sodom, and Abraham sees three men coming towards him. And he knows somehow, and we don't fully understand how he knows, but he knows that one of these three is God. It it is God somehow come in the flesh, and that the other two are angels. And so what Abraham does is Abraham takes these guys in. He prepares a meal for them. They have an incredible meal together because in the ancient world, that's what you did. You were hospitable towards people. You invited them in. You formed community. You formed neighborhoods with strangers when they came. And so they have this meal together, and then they take a walk after dinner. They're walking off their land. You know, they're just kind of stretching their legs, and they're talking. And Abraham says to the angels, Shouldn't I tell, or God says to the angel, shouldn't I tell Abraham what I'm about to do? I'm going to do something, and Abraham is a really important guy to me. I love him, so I'm going to reveal to him what I'm going to do. And that's where we pick up the story in Genesis uh, chapter 18, verse 20. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, and their sins are so grievous, that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. And then these two men, these two angels, turned and they went down into Sodom. 
But the Bible says Abraham remains standing before the Lord. So God pulls back the curtain. He says, look, Abe, this is what I'm about to do. You and I have this thing going on. We've got this relationship. I talk to you. You talk back to me. I want to use you in incredible ways. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. He says, this is what's going to happen. I've been listening to the outcry of the poor, of the oppressed, of the needy, of the forgotten. And they've been crying out to me. Uh, the, the word outcry literally means that they are just, they're screaming in anguish. They're calling out to God. And you can't hear them, Abraham, because you're up here on this hill. You can't hear what they're saying, but I can hear them. And they don't even know that I can hear them, but I hear their outcry. So I'm going to go down and I'm going to see what's happening. And if it's as bad as their outcry has been, then I'm going to destroy Sodom. And that uh, little verse right there actually teaches us something really incredible about God. This is one of the first times in the Bible that we see this truth about God. God hears our cries of distress even when we think that no one's listening. Our God is a God that hears us. He hears the outcry of his people. Have you ever sat alone in the depths of, of pain, of hurt, of despair, when you feel like no one's there and you say, God, I need your help. And then you wait, and you don't hear anything, and you think, God must not have heard me. Well, the Bible says God heard your outcry. He might not have answered you in the moment the way you think he will, because God has a, a bigger picture of human history, of eternity, and God is working things together. But God hears your pain, and God will ultimately rescue you, even if you feel like no one's listening. And so the angels of uh, of God go down into Sodom. These two men go down, and the Sodomites, the people of Sodom, just think they're strangers coming in. They go down into Sodom, and here's where Abraham and God have this really interesting conversation. And uh, I heard a preacher talk about this, and it just struck me. Something hit me like four or five months ago, and I thought, there's something in this for our community. So here's what happens uh, in verse 23. Abram, Abraham approached God and said, he asked him this question, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are, let's say, 50 people in the city that are righteous? Would you really sweep away the entire city and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous and the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you, God. Will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? And here's what Abraham is doing. He says, look, I don't know you perfectly, God. And you know what? I'm not you. So I'm not trying to tell you what to do. But what I understand about your character is that you care for the righteous and you judge the wicked. Are you really going to sweep away an entire city and kill the 50 righteous along with the wicked? Would you do such a thing? Abraham actually begins to negotiate with God. He says, God, can we just talk about this for a second? Hey, I know you got plans. I know you're, you know, I know you're capital G God. I know you're like the original G, right? But uh, there is, there's something here that just doesn't line up with me. So they get into this dialogue. Verse 26, the Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again because Abraham realizes, whoa, I, I've heard stories about Sodom Maybe 50 was shooting a little high, okay? He spoke up again. 
Okay, I've been bold to speak to my Lord once, though I'm nothing but dust and ashes. What if the number of the righteous was five less than 50? He doesn't say 45. He says just for like five people less. What if it was like five less than 50? Would you really destroy the whole city just because there are like five less righteous people? And And God says, if I find 45 people there, I won't destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him. What if only 40 people are found? So they're in this negotiation process. For the sake of 40, I will not do it, God says. And then Abraham said, May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? He answered, I will not destroy the place if 30 righteous people are found. Verse 31, Abraham said, Now that I've been so bold as to speak to my Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? And I think God's like, All right, when are we going to, you know... I get it. I get where we're going with this, okay? Or what if there are only 20 people there? He says, I won't destroy it for 20. Verse 32, then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just one more time. What if only 10 people can be found there? And God answered, for the sake of the 10, because of the 10 people, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking to Abraham, he left, and Abraham returned home. Now, don't miss this. God is, or Abraham is, he's literally asking God, God, don't judge this wicked city. Don't, don't judge this immoral city of Sodom, the city that is just destroying people, chewing them up, spitting them out, beating, raping, murdering. Don't do it, God, because his nephew's there, and he loves his nephew, and he wants his nephew to be saved. And he says, I know that they are incredibly bad. But what if there are some righteous people there? What if there are just a few? What if, and he gets down to 10 people. Remember, there are about 1,000 people in Sodom. What if just 1%, what if 10 people, 1% of the city is righteous? Would you spare the city then? Would you, would you, just, would you hold off your, your judgment a little bit more? And here's the incredible thing. God says, okay, okay, I'll do it. I know how bad Sodom is. And the people are crying out to me, and their cries are right. But you know what? If there are just 1% of the people there that are righteous, I won't destroy the city for their sake. And we have to ask the question, why? That, that doesn't make sense to me. Sodom was worse than anything we can imagine. I mean, when you think about things like genocide, holocaust, when you think of, of just morally bankrupt, no care about human life, and you say, God, judge that place now, and God waits, and you say, why, God? Why are you waiting? Why won't you just judge that place? Get it over with. Why isn't God going to judge? I, I think the answer is found in the New Testament. Um, in First Peter, and we're going to get there in just a second, but here's what I would say, and this is, this is what's, what's been coming up. As long as there are people in the world who are trying their best to live righteous lives, trying to serve God, trying to follow Him, then I think God has hope for something even as wicked as Sodom. Now, you might not like the school district that your kids are in, or you might not like the neighborhood that you live in, but I guarantee it's not as wicked as Sodom. You might not like your boss, but I guarantee he's not, I I really hope he's not raping and murdering and enslaving people. If he is, find a new line of work and call the authorities. 
You might not like the places where you live and work. You might think that they are on a totally different moral level than you, but as long as you are there, God has hope for that place. Because a little bit of flavor can flavor the entire dish. Notice what 2 Peter 3 says in answer to this question. Why isn't God just destroying the place now? 2 Peter 3 says that the, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. There was this lie going around in this church that, um, that God was never going to judge. He was never going to come, so basically do whatever you want. That's what the people were believing. And so in 2 Peter, we have a response to that. The, lowest, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Jesus waits because when you are there, there's hope that just one more person would experience God. And that's enough to hold off God's judgment. Jesus waits because as you rub shoulders with your neighbors, with your co-workers, with the kids in class with you, the students that are in college with you, with your professors, there is hope that they could experience the love of God and be transformed. We get into Genesis 19, and I don't have time to get into the whole story now, but basically, uh, through some really disturbing stuff, and you can read it, um, we find out that there aren't even 10% of the people that are righteous. Not even 10 righteous people in this city. Just Lot and his two daughters. And so God rescues Lot and his two daughters because they are righteous, and he destroys the city. But if only 1% of the people had been following God, had been trying to follow him, God would have had hope for the city of Sodom. Let's fast forward a few thousand years to the time of Jesus. Rome is the superpower uh, they are in control. They have the military. They have the money. They have the influence. They have the power. The Jews are the small band of people, and the Jews that are following Jesus make up a teeny tiny little minority of the Jewish population as a whole. No power, no influence, not a whole lot of anything going for them. And this is where Jesus says one of the most powerful things in uh, his biggest and best sermon uh, the Sermon on the Mount. He says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, to this people who have no power, no influence, incredible minority, he says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. And salt had two main purposes in the ancient world. Salt was used to flavor anything that it was paired with, and we've been talking about that. That when salt comes in contact with things, just a little bit, it flavors the dish. You were the salt of the earth. And then salt was used as a preserving agent. It preserved things. It helped keep things from spoiling. It kept the, the life alive. Salt was a preserving agent. Jesus says that when you follow him with everything that you are, when I follow him, not perfectly, but just trying, trying to live righteous lives, trying to do the things God calls us to do, when we do that, we will flavor our neighborhoods. We will do it. It's not a question of if. We will flavor those around us. We're in this two-year take-hold initiative, and the key to it is that we would follow God with everything that we have. 1 Timothy 6 is our key scripture for this next two years, which is take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. 
take hold of our lives, follow God, experience him. When we do that, people will be drawn. They just will. I was at Starbucks on Thursday over in Livermore. I was meeting with a, another pastor because he asked me to come and speak at a small groups conference that he's putting on. And so uh, this guy's one of my mentors. I really look up to him. And so I was so honored to come speak. So we're in Livermore. He lives uh, out in the Central Valley somewhere. And so we're at this Starbucks and I love coffee and I love this guy. Just a great day all the way around. And he brought his four-year-old daughter. She was sick. And um, so she sat with us too. And we just interacted for about two and a half hours, talking life, uh, friendship, what God's doing in our own lives and our ministries. We're talking about this, talked about the conference a little bit. About two hours in, this guy comes up to me, and maybe you've had this experience before. A guy, just kind of from the corner of my eye, comes up, and he's standing right above us. He says, can I interrupt for a minute? And you just never know what's going to happen in that moment. I love it. Love it. I said, sure, interrupt. He says, I got to tell you, he looks right at me. And he kind of puts his hand in my face, too. So I'm like, oh, this could be bad. He says, I got to tell you, and I don't want to weird you out, but there's something about you that just draws people in. People just want to be in your presence. And, and I just got to tell you, I think uh, that there's something about you, an aura or something that is just drawing people in. And before I could stop myself, because I've been studying this stuff and praying into it, before I could even like let that thing in the back of my head that says, don't say it, don't say it, or else they could look at you weird. I said, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ and he has transformed my life. And it was out there. And before I could go, Because then you're wondering, "Uh uh-oh, this is going to go one of two ways. Either he's going to be open to what I just said, or he's just going to fire at me. And I'm in a meeting right now. I don't really want to get fired at. But I just said, I just threw it out there. And he said, you know what? I'm a follower of Jesus too. I thought that's what it was, but I didn't want you to come up and think I was weird or that I was hitting on you or something. (laughs) He said that. I was like, okay, let's talk it out, you know? So we're getting into it. And we just had a great time talking about God. That is what will happen if we are doing everything we can to follow God. Those types of things will just happen. People will sense something, and they won't know what it is. An aura. There's an aura about you. There's something that draws people in. As we follow God, we will flavor those around us. This guy just saw the way I was interacting with this four-year-old girl and with her dad, and he was just drawn in. That's what God wants to do. By simply living the life that we're called to, we will flavor. And then the other part is by simply living the life that God's calling us to, we will be preserving agents in our neighborhoods. We will be preserving agents. You are the minority in your workplace if you're a follower of Jesus. Unless you work at the church, uh, and then it's pretty awesome. I gotta be honest. Um, but, But do you realize that you have the opportunity that I do not have in your workplace? I'm with Christians all day. And it's great to be with Christians all day, but you are in a place where you can flavor the world around you that doesn't know Jesus. And you are preserving that community. I'll put it this way. God is holding off his judgment because he has hope that people will still come to him. And the hope that he has is you, is the the Holy Spirit working in you and through you to draw people to Jesus. That's why he waits. That's why we're still here. As long as you're there, you're bringing hope to God. And you may feel insignificant. You may feel like a nothing. You may feel like you have no power, no control, no nothing. You may feel like your hands are tied because of uh, what the the school district says or what your boss says about uh, talking about Jesus. You may feel a ton of things. But the truth is, as long as you are there doing the things that God calls you to do, being that kind of person 
people will be drawn in. They'll want to know what's going on. And then the question is, what are you going to say? I could have said to that guy at Starbucks, you know, I am a pretty cool person. People are really drawn to me. That's pretty, isn't that awesome? It's the glasses. That's what I could have said. But that's not true. I was a huge jerk before I met the Lord. Nobody wanted to follow me. Nobody wanted to be my friend. They wanted to beat me up. I almost got jumped on multiple occasions. That is not a joke, so don't laugh. It's kind of funny. Before Jesus, I was nothing. And so when he said, people are drawn to you, I'm drawn to you, I had to give credit to God. God has redeemed me and restored me. And when you live that kind of life, the kind of life God's calling you to, people will notice. And the question is, what will you say when they come up to you? Will you take the credit or will you give it to God? As we kick off this series, this is the question that is obvious to me that I want us to be asking. The question is this, are you living, am I living, a salty life? Is your life salty? Here's what I mean by that. That's a great question, too, and we're going to get there. But this is the question I want to ask right now. Is your life marked by honesty, integrity, love, service, compassion? Do you treat others the way that Jesus treated them? Do you love others the way that Jesus loved them? Do you have time for people? Are you living a salty life? Or the other way to put it, when people rub shoulders with you, do they taste the flavor of Jesus? When they rub shoulders with you, do they just taste it? Like, oh, that, there's something there. It just, it's tasty. I can taste something different about you. You're not like the rest of the people here. You're not like the rest of my neighbors. There's something different. I taste the flavor of something. And then they ask you, and you say, you're tasting the flavor of Jesus in my life. Let's focus on that question as we enter into communion. And if the ushers would get the communion elements ready, that'd be incredible. The Bible is clear, and our lives show that God gave everything for us when Jesus died on the cross so that we could come into relationship with God, our Father, our Creator, the one that sustains all life, so that we could have our sins forgiven, so that we could be restored people, so we could live a new way. The stuff I'm talking about, having the flavor of Jesus, does not happen outside of Jesus. Some of us are naturally nicer than others, and that is great for you. But people like me, we need Jesus, and I think we all do. He's given everything for us, and our response is simple. Give everything back to him. Am I living a salty life? When people rub shoulders with me, do they taste Jesus? Is everything I do every day bringing honor to God? If it is, then let's take this piece of bread, which Jesus says is my body that's been broken and given for you, and let's take this cup of juice that Jesus says is my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of your sins, and let's thank Jesus for counting us worthy to be able to live salty lives. Let's just thank him and praise him and worship him. If the answer is no, then I'd like to encourage you, let's spend some time before you take communion to examine your life. Are there places in life where I'm not salty, where the flavor is anything but Jesus? And then ask God to transform that.
And if you're here this morning and you've never made a decision to give your life to God, I want to tell you it is the most incredible choice you could ever make. 20 years from now, you won't care who won the Super Bowl, but your life will be forever changed if you give yourself to Jesus completely. The Bible says we're separated from God by this thing called sin. It's destructive patterns in our lives that hurt us, that hurt others, that separate us from God and hurt God, the one that created us. But through Jesus, God brought us back to himself. He restored us to himself so that we could live an incredible life with him. And he's calling you today. Today is the best day for you to give your life to Jesus. Yesterday is gone and tomorrow is too late. Do it today. Say yes to him. If you sense that God is calling you, if what I'm saying is, is really is ringing true, it's making sense, it's clicking with you, whether in your head or in your heart, I want to encourage you, say yes to God today. I'm going to pray and uh, partway through that prayer, I'm going to give you a chance. If you've never uh, invited Jesus to be the Lord of your life, given your life to him, you can pray a simple prayer after me and you can make that decision today. And then we will take a communion and we will celebrate that. So would you join me as we pray? Lord, would you help us, would you show us, would you teach us, and would you give us the power to live salty lives? To live lives that uh, when we rub shoulders with people, as we talk about forming neighborhoods and the places that we work and play and live, as we rub shoulders with people, would you give us uh, the type of lives that people would just say there's something different about you? Would they be able to taste you, Jesus, your character, your love, your heart for them? As we simply rub shoulders, Jesus, you said to each of us who follow after you that we are salt. You didn't tell us to become salt. You didn't tell us that someday we would be salt. You told us that the minute we start following you, we are salt. Would you help us to take that identity on and live salty lives? And as we continue to pray this morning, if you've never come into a relationship with Jesus, today is your day. God's calling you. I want to tell you an incredible thing. The creator of the universe that made all this stuff, that made you, he's calling you. He knows you. The Bible says there's not one cry for pain that you've ever had that he did not hear. And he loves you and he wants to be in a relationship with you. So if you're here this morning and you've never made a decision to come into a relationship with Jesus, would you sense him stirring in you today? Would you pray this simple prayer after me? And you can just repeat it right where you are. You can pray, Lord Jesus, today I sense you calling me to yourself. Would you please come and forgive me of my sins? Would you please draw me into relationship with God? Holy Spirit, would you come and fill my life and guide me to truth? And would you guide me on this journey all the days of my life? I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information, at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.